Have you ever struggled to fish a dry fly? Maybe you've been on the water and seen fish rising but can't get them to take your fly? Wonder what the best in the country are doing and how to fish a dry dropper to get more takes? Today we have Jason Randall back on to break down dry fly fishing, the perfect dry dropper leader setup, and how to fish it. This is the Wet Fly Swing Podcast where we show you the best places to travel to for fly fishing, how to find the best resources and tools to prepare for this big trip, and what you can do to give back to the fish species we love. Hey, I'm Dave, host of the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. I've been fly fishing since I was a kid and grew up around a fly shop. I have created one of the largest fly fishing podcasts in the country, and I've also interviewed more of the greatest fly anglers than just about any show in the world. Today, Jason is going to give us three of his biggest tips on rigging and fishing the dry fly. These include the unique way he rigs his leader with a tippet ring, why you should twitch your fly and when to do it, and why most people are failing on the transfer of energy in their fly and how you can fix this when casting. Plus, we get Jason's take on the best knot to tie your leaders together, and we find out more about the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival. This is Bo's amazing event where Jason will be taking this conversation further this year. It's going to be happening in less than two weeks, so you can get on it right now if we still have time. I 100% guarantee this is going to blow you away today, so sharpen that pencil and get ready to take notes. Here we go. Class is in session with Jason Randall on Instagram at Jason Randall Fly Fishing. How you doing, Jason? Hey, I'm doing good, Dave. Thanks. Good to talk to you again. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for coming on and doing another episode here. I was just looking back on it and uh, it's been a little while. I know you've been super busy as always with shows and things, but I think uh, it was episode 74 where we actually talked about nymphing. So this will be a good uh, transition because today we're going to talk a little more about dry flies and some of the things you're doing. I think at some of the upcoming shows, we've been uh, working with Bo and talking with, to some of the guests that are at his shows. And I think you're going to be at uh, the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival. Is that correct? You bet. I'm going to be uh, talking fly fishing and microbrews. And, my, <laughs> and microbrews. Good stuff. I may not talk a lot about the microbrews, but I'll probably drink a few. I was going to say, so one of the things you probably can't do is uh, partake in, you're probably not drinking brews while you're presenting, right? That's kind of after the fact. Yeah, yeah, that's for the social hour. Yeah, the social hour, exactly. Nice. So I'm I'm excited. I probably won't be there this year for the show, but I'm kind of building some stuff with both. So I'm hoping that maybe next year I'll get there. But I, I wanted to share you know, some background on what you're going to be presenting there. And I think dry flies and droppers uh, might be one topic. You're going to be doing some other stuff. But give us, before we jump into all that, give us a little update. Uh, 74 was back in April 2019. So it's almost been, I mean, we're going on quite a number of years. Uh, I know it's hard to say we've gone through COVID, but I guess in recent years, like the last year, what have you been up to? Well, it's been busy and, and, and in a good way, though. Uh, back then, when we talked last time, I think uh, my nymphing book had just come out. And I, in order to do that, I had uh, done a long tour of some of the European style uh, nymphing grandmasters in Europe and spent a, an awful lot of time working with local experts and, and uh, worldwide experts to try to really develop uh, all I could for that nymphing book. That's called Nymph Masters, mm. Fly Fishing Secrets from Expert Anglers. And um, But since then... I really wanted to get back on my dry fly game again. So I spent uh, the last three years really focusing on dry flies, developing leaders that allow uh, the very best dead uh, drag-free drift, but also that are also designed to be able to animate and activate the drift as well to try to entice those trout a little bit more. So I've really focused on, on technique, 
methodology, rigging, how to rig, what to rig with. I've really, uh, really focused on that. And this year at the show circuit, I've really brought that, I think, to the audience to, to share that with them. Nice, nice. And yeah, and so we're talking about a little bit about Bose events, but you also do kind of the show circuit, the other like the fly fishing shows, right? Is, are you doing a number of those this year's as well? I am. I am. We just finished up uh, in Marlboro, then we're headed to Denver, Edison, Atlanta, and then I'll be with Bo in Dallas uh, shortly after that. Get ready to explore the wild of Northern Rockies adventures. Imagine yourself surrounded by pristine waters, towering mountains, and the thrill of landing trophy fish like the majestic Arctic grayling, the elusive bull trout, or the classic rainbow trout. With over 40 years' experience guiding anglers through these breathtaking landscapes, Daniel's family-operated trips promise not just a fishing journey, but an adventure of a lifetime. From the convenience of Vancouver, B.C., dive into an all-inclusive experience that caters to every detail of your trip so you can focus on the thrill of the hookup. Take a look for yourself at northernrockiesadventures.com for an exclusive premium B.C. fly-in fly fishing trip. In Dallas, yeah, and, and are you covering similar topics at the the shows with the Fremsky shows? Typically, yes. I'll do uh, some private classes and then do some presentations in the seminar rooms, and it's a wide variety of different topics. Yes, but usually uh, the classes would be oriented around nymphing. I'll be doing a dry fly and dry fly dropper class uh, at the Dallas show. Yeah, exactly. So the dry fly, and that's what I want to dig into today because. You know, I think nymphing is a great topic. It's something, you know, is definitely effective. You know, that's one of the almost controversial, right? You get you hear people talk about like even like Euro nymphing and some of these highly technical nymphing that it's almost like people say, Wow, God, you almost catch too many fish. Like what would you <laughs> what, what would you say to that? That seems like kind of a stretch, but do you feel like <laughs> is that a yeah, valid well, comment? It is legal cheating, I think. Euro nymphing is so effective because when you think about it it does really give us the best opportunity to reach those three goals of nymph fishing. In order to catch fish, you've got to reach those three intermediate goals, which is getting your flies to the strike zone, getting a really good presentation once you get the flies to the strike zone, and then having an accurate method of strike detection when that trout picks up your fly. Right, 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 right. And it hits all of those. And so when you're thinking about, you know, the dry fly, how, how does, maybe let's touch on We'll start here and we'll bump around a little bit, but with the dry fly, say for your presentation, how do you maybe describe that at the show? You know, what are a few of the key topics that you're covering there? Well, we we cover uh, everything from start to finish. So it's, it's designed to uh, be something useful for maybe a more novice fisherman, but it really does get into some advanced techniques on presentation, um, alternatives to the dead drift. Um, it focuses a lot on how to get that perfect dead drift um, when you're trying to, to do a dead drifting insect. So it does, uh, it focuses on leader construction, what materials to use, um, where we want to attach the fly and to what material uh, we want to do that to give that fly the most liberty of movement to interact with the current. Uh, especially when trout get a little bit fussy, um, they uh, every little thing matters. And so catching fish on a dry fly is not just one thing. It's the sum of a lot of little things, but it can add up to a lot of extra fish in the course of the day. Amazing. Yeah, this is awesome. I mean, all the topics you're talking about are perfect because I think dry fly fishing has always been one of my struggles. You know, I've talked about that, but 
So I'm really interested in hearing that, uh, you know, more about this, but so let's talk about that with the dead drift because you know, that is a challenge. You've got all these changing currents and one current's going this way and you're trying to get this fly presented. What do you tell people when they're, you know, how do they get the perfect dead drift? Well, it starts with uh, with the leader. So I uh, I look at comparing commercial leaders to uh, yeah, to maybe a handmade leader, and all leaders, uh, especially the commercial ones, are really um, designed to transfer energy to the fly to turn that fly over and uh, and uh, you know to get that fly to land on the water, but. Typically, in a commercial leader, the transfer of energy fails at the taper where that very small area, the 20% of the leader that's, that has the taper, that's where the, the weakest transfer of energy occurs. And so typically, that's where our slack begins to pile up. And so on a 9 or 12 foot leader, you might have 4 feet of slack, maybe oh, wow. even 5 feet of slack between you and the, the, the fly, between the, the uh, butt section or the upper 60% of the leader and the fly. You might have a significant pile of slack, which isn't exactly what we're looking for. It can cause wind knots when we pick them up. And so if you're willing to to make a uh, leader. I worked a couple of years on developing a, a really efficient leader formula um, that is uh, really 10 feet of gradually reducing uh, in diameter, gradually uh, reducing in length um, of maxima chameleon to a tippet ring. And then from the tippet ring, I'm using a very light and supple tippet uh, maybe two feet, maybe three feet, depends on casting corridors and wind and, and how well I can manage uh, a longer length. But what that does is that really energy efficient leader um, transfers all of the energy pretty effectively down to that transition when we transfer or when we change over to, to light supple material. So the collapse occurs there. So I actually am able to now really control where that leader collapses. And so I collapse it with only a foot or two of, uh, of slack right before the fly. So I have it's much less tangle prone. It's just more effective uh, uh, in casting. And, and the, the way it transfers energy, it really it really gives you a much more elegant cast. And then the way it, uh, it uh, tends to collapse, it's almost like doing a pile cast um, even when you're not trying to do one, you put a lot of slack to give that fly um, the best um, liberty to move with the current. Wow, that, that's awesome. And, and now, just to clarify, you are, are you talking about uh, dry flies here as well, or is this more of a nymph-focused leader? No, this is all dry flies. Yeah, this would all be dry flies. Yeah, dry flies. So, so the cool thing about this is you mentioned tippet rings, probably something that not a lot of people think about with dry fly fishing. So describe that. Why... Why is a tippet ring? What do you use? Because you would think that the tippet ring might be a little bit heavy. And then uh, why the tippet ring? Some of the older ones probably were too heavy. But the newer ones, uh, several manufacturers are now making one millimeter tippet rings. And they actually will, will float. Um, they don't break the surface film. So they'll sit right up there. And, and uh, I haven't had a problem with them. Wow. Amazing. Okay. So, so good. So you're going to be covering, you know, at the Texas festival, you're going to talk about, you know, these are some topics. And another one you mentioned was kind of a moving current, uh, you know, as maybe this applies to some of that, but describe that if you've got all these changing currents and you see a fish rising, you see maybe a head popping out, how are you kind of uh, negotiating the currents? 
Well, I think approach angles is the first thing we should think of. I mean, we just automatically want to fire a cast right off, you know, onto that fish. But it, it really pays to take a moment um, and just look at, at the angle from which you're looking at the trout and say, hey, well, this isn't the best place to cast from. You know, if I cast from here, I'm going to have to go directly across all these currents. I'll only get about three feet of drift. Um, but if I moved maybe into a downstream angled position, um, I could probably get three times that length of drift before drag took over. So I think um, our approach angle is often overlooked. And a lot of times, too, on my tricky waters that I, uh, that I call my home waters in Wisconsin, mm -hmm. um, sometimes you just, you, you just have to do a downstream presentation. You have to get above that fish. And then um, that becomes a lot easier and, again, often overlooked. I can just feed some slack into the drift to, uh, to get that fly right down to the fish. He sees the fly first without me um, having the, the chance of lining him, casting my line over his head. There's no false cast. And boy, it can make a lot of difference. Right, right, right. So you're talking, and I've always thought about that because that's something I've done before and maybe not with as much success. But so would, if how would you do that? You, would you just make your cast to where the kind of the same line and then just kind of like have line stripped out and just let it go, let the current take it? Or are there any tips there? Yeah, for sure. I, I would do that uh, as a start, which you've described. I would put a cast that will take the fly um, into the current lane for the trout. And then I would have um, sufficient slack pulled off the reel um, in my uh, line hand. And then I would just simply um, put the rod up and down, not jiggle it side to side to feed out slack as the drift proceeded, because that moves your fly. If you go side to side, not only do you end up with all these snake coils of uh, of uh, a slack out there, uh, but you also will move that fly if you go side to side. But if you flip it up and down to feed out slack and extend that drift, um, it really works so much better. Perfect. Yeah, that is great. And I've done that before messed up. So yeah, so up and down and, and almost like a, like you would be doing sometimes like a twitch. Is there any time where on that dry fly as it's in the some fishing, are you twitching ever that fly a little bit? Absolutely. I'll always put a few dead drifts, uh, drag-free drifts through, typically um, through that water first. And then I'll catch whatever trout there might be on a, on, a, uh, on a drift, natural drift. And then after that, the next ones, I'll do some type of animation. And we talked a little bit about the leader and, and the terminal tippet, but mm -hmm. I also rig my dry flies much different than I did, say, five or eight years ago. I put them uh, off. I split um, terminal tippet and uh, either with a, a tippet ring again or a blood knot. And I'll put my dry fly off a six inch tag and I'll put my dropper then down on the point so that I've given my dry fly the ultimate freedom of movement um, to interact with the small scale nuances of current. But it, what it really does is it also gives me the maximal um, impact and opportunity for animation. So uh, I, can, I can make that dry fly dance on the water. Say you've got a caddis on there and uh, uh, off of a, a tag dropper and then a couple feet below that, maybe 20 inches, 22 inches below that, you've got, say, a deep sparkle pupa, a weighted fly. And what I can do as that drift passes uh, my position is I can lift and get that dry fly off of the water 
And then because it's still anchored with the weighted fly, I lower it down and I can make that dance like an egg laying caddis on the surface uh, of the water. And man, it just, it, that's deadly summer tactic. You right. know, when a trout or maybe they're just a little soft on their bite and a little reluctant, that can make all the difference in the world. And then I also use a, uh, a foam body CDC caddis uh, that I get from uh, Howie Fisher, actually, at Fisher Flies. And I will do the same thing with a very lightly weighted, drop, weighted dropper. I will do kind of a twitch and, and, uh, and pause so that when I twitch it and pop it, that foam body will go under the water. And we used to call it a puff daddy or a puff and twitch. We used to do it with the puff daddy flies as well. But as I, as I am twitching that back to me, I do a three-inch pop and then a pause. And so that, that weighted fly pulls the, uh, the uh, CDC foam uh, dry fly under about an inch. And then the pause allows it to pop right back up to the surface. It looks just like a, a, an emerging caddis. And it is a deadly summer tactic around my neck of the woods. Right. And your neck of the woods is uh, still the driftless area? Yep. That's home waters for me. I'm, I'm blessed to be able to fish so many different places. And, and I love different waters. I love seeing new waters and I love fishing uh, different types of rivers and streams. But boy, I'll tell you what, it's always good to come home and fish up here. This is awesome. Yeah, we're. I've been working on trying to put together as we build some of our schools and courses and stuff a, a dry fly school. And that, I'm glad we're talking about this because Driftless is one area I haven't been to, and I'm hoping to maybe do that up there and talk dry fly. So, what is the Driftless the perfect? Is that a really great place for dry flies for somebody to learn? It is. Um, it's highly technical water, though. It's all spring creeks and and uh, narrow water. So it's a uh, an exacting classroom. You know, if you if you're thinking about learning to to fly fish, it can be. Um, yep, you could get skunked. Yeah, it can be tough, but when you start to really work at it, you can dial it in and, and have tremendous success up here. And we do have so many good hatches. We have kind of a uh, well maybe a 10-month uh, blue-wing olive opportunity. Oh, wow. Sometimes we'll get them all 12 months, but we have a lot of blue-wing olives. Um, we have a, a good number of caddis. Um, we even do some crane flies. We have a good beetle ant and hopper season in the summer. Um, so it's, it's, it is a pretty diverse dry fly fishery. Daniel from Northern Rockies Adventures will be joining me on the podcast this year. Uh, check it out, episode 540, where we're going to talk about what it was like growing up in the northern Rockies and around float planes and what it was like becoming a float plane captain. Um, and we also find out about the family premium uh, BC fly fishing business. Stay tuned and be sure to check out nradventures.com slash swing. Anglers Coffee roasts some of the highest quality coffee on the market, and every bag you purchase goes to support the fish species we love. My favorite this month is the Woolies blend, the dark roast that Joe has worked his magic, meets my needs, and, uh, and I can't explain exactly what it is, but it's smooth and just right to get my day started. You can head over to Anglers right now at wetflyswing.com anglers to support a sustainable company with unsurpassed taste. What would be if we were putting together, you know, a class for, again, it's always tough because there's going to be a mix some probably some, you know, beginners and more intermediate, but when would be a good time, do you think, if it was a dry fly type of class to do that up there? April and May. Okay. April, May. Yeah. Yeah. Those are really, really good dry fly. You know, you put a purple haze on there and, and, uh, 
you know, some kind of a pheasant tailed uh, variation on a dropper, and you could just have an outstanding time. Oh, nice. Good. Okay. And I want to go back to the leader because you mentioned some really awesome tips here, and I, I want to just go back and cover that again. So can you describe that dry fly leader you talked about and then how the dropper works? Maybe just start from the butt end, and you know, I'm, I'm assuming you're up there using like a four weight or something like that fly line? Typically, yeah. A three or four weight is going to work well on these spring creeks. And then um, my upper 10 feet of uh, the leader is what I call my standing section of the, the leader. Um, and people look at it and they think, wow, that's a lot of different you know, material changes and blood knots. And, and I don't want to tie that many blood knots and, and whatnot. But you know what? I only tie one of those a year, typically. Right. It, and it does. It takes me a little while to tie a blood knot sometimes, too. My eyes and my fingers aren't what they were 10 years ago. <laughs> but you know how that catches up to you. But um, I always joke, and I don't want to offend any people out there, but, you know, I, 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 it takes me about 20 minutes to tie up that standing part of my leaders. And I always put a uh, start when I put the Bears game on because I'm, I'm usually done with my leader by the end of the first quarter, and the, the game's over at that point anyway. <laughs> nice. So I don't want to offend Bears fans because I am one, but that's just the way it's been for us. So the Bears aren't that good these days. <laughs> well, it's about a 20-minute game. I'll put it that way. Uh, but no, that's not. we're not that bad. But, um, you know, that's, that is my standing uh, section of my leader. Now, the wear section, it gets chopped up and changed every time I change flies or you know, it gets uh, buffed up and scuffed up. And so I do change the wear section of that leader probably on a daily basis. And I'll adjust it, too, because since that's the point of, uh, of the, the failure of energy transfer, on a windy day, that can blow all over the, the place. I can have a nice straight leader and, and uh, at that junction where I go to really light material and supple, it can, the windy days can really uh, can be uh, confounding. And so I'll shorten that down to a foot. Then uh, it doesn't make that much difference. Oh, wow. On other days, it might be three feet. Three feet. Okay. So, and on that 10 foot section, you would, so this is like from your fly line, you have 10 feet of what you're building with your, maybe describe that again. How does that look? How many knots are you putting in there? What is your breakdown? Well, you know, I can also send that to anybody that wants it too. And I, you know, it's not... Uh, How would they get that? How would they get that, Jason? What would be the best way if somebody wanted to get a view of this? Yeah, probably to reach out on Instagram. Okay. What's your Instagram, just so we know? At Jason Randall Fly Fishing will get to me. And I usually check it here and there. I'm not on it all the time. But I would be happy to, um, you know, send it along to anyone. But I'm looking it up now here so that oh, yeah. I can give you some That'd be awesome. specifics. So I got to pull it out of a presentation. But I do share it. Uh, at the presentations and, and uh, programs. Okay. And you're probably getting people that are taking phone screenshots and stuff. Yeah. Right? All sorts and of I things. don't yeah. care. They can, yeah. they can take it. I mean, that's why we did it is to be able to share it. So I'm just looking at it here. So my stream um, leader is 32 inches of 20 pound chameleon. That's mm -hmm. maximum chameleon to the first blood knot that attaches on the other side to the fly line. Okay, so 32 inches of 20 pound, and then I do 26 inches of 15 pound with a blood knot connection, then 22 inches of 10 pound maxima chameleon, then 16 inches of 8 pound, 12 inches of 5 pound, and 12 inches of 4 pound to a tippet ring. And actually, this leader 
you know, I, I, uh, it's not the sole efforts of my work. Um, we, uh, we kind of put our heads together when we were, we were all out fishing one time, Devin Olson and Ed Engel and I, and we were talking leaders and, and Devin had his favorite and Ed had his and AK best. We kind of used uh, some of his uh, ideas on this as well. And um, this is kind of uh, over the, the course of discussions and a couple of drinks. This is what <laughs> we came up with. And um, so it's kind of more of a corroborative effort. I, I don't want to take credit for it by myself. Um, but it was it's just it makes you a good caster when you have the right leader. Plus, when I have that 10 uh, foot of of standing uh, leader and I add two feet of wear section, which is maybe six X um, material terminal tippet. Um, you talk about being able to animate that because I can lift all of that off the water without dragging it back to me. And I can make that thing pop and dance and twitch. Uh, and that's great for hoppers too. So these long leaders, I can pick pockets and I can reach out over and I don't have as much uh, problem with drag because I can kind of more or less high stick a leader that long. And yeah, that's a deadly technique. And sometimes we, we forget that. Amazing. Yeah, this is sweet. So basically, you've got this heavier, nice built, uh, you know, and you're not losing the transfer energy is very much reduced versus say, if you buy a, a more a store bought and then on the and then you have a tippet ring. And the main reason for the tippet ring, why is that again? Why not just have another blood knot down to your other your, your smaller tippet? Um, because every time I would change out my terminal wear section, my terminal tippet, I would be shortening that last segment. Yeah, right. Okay, so I would eventually, I would be way back, you know, into the main body of the leader. Plus, I like the way it makes just an abrupt transition between the stiffer, thicker uh, upper section and that real soft, supple, and thinner lower section, the wear section. So that real abrupt transition is what really allows that to collapse at the point where that slack ends up right in front of my fly. Wow. Okay. So perfect. And then on the length of the tippet ring or on the length of the tippet, what would be the longest? I think you mentioned the shortest, but what would be, let's just say, what would be the shortest and what would be the longest length of tippet you would have on there? I probably don't use much over four feet okay. um, below the tippet ring because that would be 14 foot leader to the dry fly. Then if I've got a dropper, then I'm getting out to 16 feet ish. And, uh, um, when you go to pick that up, I mean, that can be um, maybe a little tangle prone. So typically, I would say average, I'm probably around two feet, you know, 28 inches, maybe something like that. Yeah, 28 inches. Okay. And then, and I want to talk about the dropper again here in a sec. But the cool thing about this is that what it sounds like uh, very similar to, we just had Pete Erickson on talking about some of the Euro nymphing stuff. And he was describing the Euro nymphing leaders. And I mean, this yeah. sounds like very similar to some of those. Like there's one old school, I think Vladi, he mentioned back in the old days, he had this one was pretty much one length, the leader, and then it had the tippet ring and then a, and the tippet. Is, yeah. there, is, that, is there a lot of similarities here in the, the nymphing stuff you do? Not in the way I use it now. And I did, I, I trained under Vladi when I was oh, okay. doing the, the oh, book. Wow. And so I got to fish with him. I can't pronounce the name of the river. <laughs> no, fish either, yeah. with, but it was down by Zakopane in Poland. And, and we spent a couple of days down there fishing with him. And he is a superstar. He is and colorful and just a nice guy and so generous with his uh, with his talents and knowledge. But um, the leaders that I use um, now are more along the lines of what I would call a micro leader. Oh, for yeah. Euro and so my leaders are super, super 
simple and it's just maybe 10 to, to 12 feet of uh, an upper uh, material. Usually it's something that's visible to a tippet ring uh, and then you know anywhere from five to 10 feet of, of terminal fluorocarbon below that so that everything that would be in uh, the water or under the water would be level and thin. That's it's the mantra thin to win because that cuts through the currents more effectively and that allows uh, our flies to get to depth, reach those three goals of nymphing we talked about, which is first getting your flies down through the current. Right. Getting them down. No. So that's a very good clarification. Yeah. This, so the dry fly leader we described is for dry flies. It makes sense. So you can right. control that. And then the Euro is the micro leader, which Pete also mentioned a little bit. Then I think he, he just won. We've been mentioned talking about this, but he won the gold up in Canada this year using oh, his, great. Wow. Yeah, using his micro leader, you know, he, so he, awesome. and he described that I'll put a link in the show notes on that episode that we had where yeah. Yeah. So, so it's That's been pretty cool. cool. Stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I you know, it's a, it's a very fun part of our sport, you know, Euro nymphing. Yeah, it is. It is. It's awesome. I think it sometimes gets uh, there. It's interesting how it works. You've probably heard this a lot. You're sometimes right. You get this new topic that comes out and it's, and people kind of poo poo it like, oh, Euro nymphing. What is this crap? You know, but right. it, it's kind of funny. I mean, what's your take on that? Have you seen this over your time in fly fishing where you see these, <laughs> these new things come out and they work really well, but people are like, why? This is not fishing. Have you ever, like, what's your take there? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It, I, that's true. But I saw the same thing happen around Tenkara, too. Oh, right. It, it kind of exploded into the sport for a couple of years. And then it's just kind of, you know, it's kind of a lot less discussed and a lot less common, I think, than it was maybe four or five years ago when it really came on strong. But I think Tenkara is, a, is also a great way um, for those people that like it to present and animate a dry fly and also works well for a urinimping rig, too. Yeah, I agree. I think it's all awesome. So let's finish up. We'll go back to the leader. So we got this dry fly leader and then describe again how you do the dropper setup. Okay. So below that tippet ring into my, into my terminal tippet now that I attach to that tippet ring, I might put a couple of feet of, uh, of uh, terminal um, tippet and then I'll split that into two, a long tag. I'm sorry, a, a short tag and a long dropper. To the short tag, which might be six inches, I'm going to fasten my dry fly. And to the longer dropper um, segment, I would then put my uh, my dropper. So my dry fly is on the tag, maybe four to six inches uh, from that knot or tippet ring. And then the dropper would be um, trailing below that. Oh, gotcha. Yeah. So you're doing a, you're using like a surgeon's knot for the, the tag? You could. Yeah, yeah, you could. If you use a surgeon's knot, you can always put a half hitch in front of it. Yeah. To get it to come off a little more uh, parallel. Some people think. What do you uh, use for your knot? I'll use a blood knot. I like the way it comes off, but um, that half hitch in front of a double surgeon's, that's an Ed Angle trick that, that uh, he shares. And I thought, that's I've done it and it works really well. It gets the flies away from each other a little more effectively, and I think it does prevent um, the, the, the line wrap, the tippet wrap that we sometimes see with two flies. This is cool. Yeah, no, I love the the fact that you're talking about the blood knot. That's kind of my go-to knot. You know, I've always used the blood knot. It's kind of what my dad taught me back in the day. And so yeah. you, you use that for everything. Is that your main knot for tying leaders together? It is. Yeah. And yeah. is that because it's the, I've heard it's the strongest knot, but why do you like the blood knot? Well, I think, again, it takes a little while to learn it. It's not the easiest knot for most of us anglers. Uh, but if you, 
If you'll spend a, a Sunday afternoon working on it, I think you can get pretty good at it. And I get to the point where I can tie it reasonably quick. Um, you know, some people do like tippet rings, and I have nothing against putting a tippet ring um, down that low in the wear section to split it. Mm. The advantage of having a tippet ring is if I do break off one fly um, and not the other, I don't have to completely re-rig the split. Right. So, I mean, I do use blood knots, though, but by anchoring my dry fly off of that tag, I only have my dry fly fastened by the hook eye. It's not got a, a trailer dropper fastened to the hook shank. And so it really does uh, give that, that dry fly the ultimate in liberty to move. It's not tethered front and back that restricts its movement. And especially in some of the well, winter conditions like they are right now up in Wisconsin. I mean, we're having low, clear water and, and all those little things matter. And again, they're, being a good dry fly fisherman isn't just one thing. It's, you know, it's, it's a sum of, of a lot of things that, that add up to a lot of extra fish at the end of the day, though. Like well, the cast that we need to do. And right. I, when I teach these uh, dry dropper and dry fly classes, I, I really emphasize two casts. If you can do a reach cast and if you can do a, uh, a, a slack line cast, like a pile cast, those are the fly uh, casts that we need um, mostly as dry fly fishermen. And then good line management technique as well, mending. And I do spend quite a bit of time on mending as well because too often we just kind of drag our, yep. our, our mend instead of uh, snapping it off the water almost like you do with a – like a, a spiral um, pickup when you pick up your line. you got to snap it off the, the, the water. And if you'll do that, you can mend without moving your fly usually or moving it minimally. Right. God, this is great. So, and then just to finish up on the, the dropper there. So basically you're, you're doing your 24 inches of your, your tippet, which could be like what typically on the X are you, do, what, what would be the, the smallest you'd be using? Oh boy, I used to use smaller, I'll tell you that. Yeah. <laughs> but now I just I struggle with 7X anymore. It's it's I can't feel it as well on my fingers and I I really have trouble seeing it. So I'm mostly I'm going to use 6X. If I'm in stained water or uh you know, I might go down to 5X or, or something like that. But uh typically I would be at 5 or 6 five or six okay so you have the and then you have say 24 inches of that in the situation then you would do a blood knot and then would the end of the blood knot describe that again how that blood knot works to your flies okay so we're talking about the terminal or wear section of the leader so i'd, I'd have probably uh two feet average then from the tippet ring down to the first blood knot or tippet ring if you want and i would put a blood knot there um with fluorocarbon and then I would tie my dry fly on the short tag end, which would be six inches. And then my dropper then would be on the long end of that blood knot, um, uh, which would give me about, you know, anywhere from 16 to 24 inches um, separation from the, from the dry fly. And um, again, that, that's what works for me uh, most of the time. That's awesome. And then, and then that's like you said, then you can, with that, use that little. And then what would be a good uh, dropper you'd put on, you'd, if you had, let's say, describe maybe a couple of patterns you'd have as the dropper in the, in the main. Well, in the summertime, I probably would go with a modified X caddis as my dry fly and a deep sparkle pupa um, as, uh, as my dropper. Uh, mm -hmm. It's a great summer uh, pattern. 
Plus, I can animate that um, in real enticing ways to catch a few more uh, trout every day. E, the rest of the time, you know, in the early spring, late winter, um, I probably would be using a purple haze and some small, I, I, I like the ice dub Frenchies in size uh, maybe 18s. And again, when I'm using droppers, I'm not using real heavy flies um, because I like the smaller flies anyway, even for my dry flies. And, and a lot of the, the larger nymphs, the heavier nymphs are going to sink it. And, um, you know, when we're dry droppering, we're not intending to get our dropper to the strike zone of, of nymph fishing. So you're not going to get there because if it were to get there, then that uh, nymph, that weighted nymph in the strike zone would be moving half speed of the surface current, which is the fast, that's how fast the strike zone moves beneath the current. It's half the speed of what we see. So you'd ask your dry fly to move at full speed. You'd be asking your heavily weighted nymph to move at half speed. You're going to get dragged somewhere in that. Mm you know, between the two flies. So typically when I'm doing dry dropper, I'm looking for opportunities. The right opportunities for me to put on a dry dropper would be when I don't intend that um, that dropper to get to the strike zone. So I'm looking for opportunities when trout would be feeding in the middle part of the column. So maybe not the fastest water is typically what I would choose. Um, you know, I, I would choose maybe medium and slightly slower water um, for my dry dropper um, just to avoid that competition, um, you know, between those two flies. I see. Wow. So getting the right weight on that is perfect. And then for that dropper or, or for the, the, the fly that's sinking down, how do you, you know, what would be a typical like weight or fly or would you have any sort of a, any weight on it at all or how would it get down? Yeah. I would. I'd probably, if I'm doing my ice tub Frenchie below a dry dropper, I might be at a size 16 or 18 with a less than uh, two millimeter bead on it, probably. Oh, two mil. Okay. Good. Yeah, something in that range, in the two mil range, probably. Yeah, perfect. So this is great. So I think we covered that awesome. And again, like we said, you're going to be going over all this and more at the Texas show and at any of the, most of the shows I think you're covering, but definitely at the Texas, you're going to cover this dry dropper and go into detail, right? Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah, perfect. So, okay, well, you mentioned mending. I want to just touch on that a little bit because that's another uh, kind of challenge, I think, for people. So if you're fishing this, are you doing a lot of mending with this setup that you talk about here or just a, fly, a dry fly in general? Yeah, I think especially on larger bodies of water or, or you know, wider stretches of water, we're going to need to mend. I mean, on some small spring creeks, um, if you are casting more or less straight upstream or straight downstream, the mending isn't as common. But anytime you're in, in anything larger than that, you're going to need to mend. And the trick to mending is uh, is to mend early and often. Uh, and to break the surface tension, once you let that fly line sit on the water for three or four or five seconds, it really starts to get pretty stuck on it. It'll start to settle below the film. And so the, the water gets a pretty good grip on that line. And when we mend, we have got to break that surface tension. Otherwise, we make this big slurping sound and we move our fly because we cannot break the surface tension without doing those. So I try to snap my line up and kind of flip it in the air at the same time in a spiral fashion so that I'm getting um, the line up off the water in one snap. And then I'm also getting, uh, by doing it in kind of a C shape or a spiral fashion, I'm also introducing the mend as well. 
Mm. Okay. And when I think of, uh, you know, just a typical man, so you could just say an upstream man, you, you got your fly, maybe the current's dragging part of it down, you're lying down, you make a little upstream man to get it maybe in the right. So you, what you're talking about, the snap and flip would be, maybe describe that more. How is that different than just say maybe like making that one action of mending your fly line upstream in a certain situation? I think the biggest thing is probably the speed of the men. Most of the time, we just kind of lazily pick up the line and we kind of, of uh, throw it up above it. But in doing that slow uh, movement of our hand, we are actually creating those problems we're trying to avoid. And so what I find myself doing is I do kind of a, a very quick snap at the same time that I send a, a, a loop down the line. And then I can kind of control where that mend uh, occurs so that I can mend not maybe uh, in front of me directly, but where the current is having the most negative effect on my line. And that's where we want our mend to go. And so by kind of adjusting the degree. Um, I can kind of put that mend where I need it, but because I do it in a quick snapping movement, almost like instead of kind of, if you envision a typical mend, it's kind of an upside down U. Yeah. Okay. It, it's just kind of this slow, a slow sweep kind of up and then uh, upstream and up in the air. But mine is more done with the, uh, in a spiral fashion. So, and I'm snapping it um, to get that. First thing I need to do is break the surface tension and the grip on the water. And then I need to have the same movement that will send um, that coil down the length of the line so that I get the mend where I need it. So my mends are, are more snappy, I guess, if I were just going to describe them in one word. Yeah. That's awesome. No, that's definitely different than probably the way a lot of people think about it. So the snap and flip. So you're getting the men and basically you're getting the line up off of the water. So you're kind of controlling, you know, you're controlling it. So I can imagine if you're using that 10 foot section of your butt end, which is, you know, if that sinks down, you're in trouble, right? So you're always right. trying to keep that kind of like uncontrolled on top of the water. Is that the goal here? Typically, yes, it is. But if, if you think of what we would describe as a spiral line pickup, you know, when we pick up to do the next cast, if we don't do something like a spiral or a, a, a twitch, we will get that loud slurping sound yeah. uh, when we go to recast. And that's the same kind of a movement I do for the men. So I'll do that spiral snap to break the surface tension when I go to recast. So it does not um, it doesn't make that sound, but it, my men looks a little bit like that too. It looks almost like a spiral pickup because once I get the air out of the, uh, the line out of the water and away from its grip, then I can start to do things with it um, that are not going to have negative consequences. Trout Routes is the most comprehensive mapping app for trout anglers. With over 50,000 trout streams, 350,000 access points, public land maps, and more, Trout Routes is the number one resource for navigating, researching, and exploring trout streams, and it deserves a place in every angler's toolkit. I was in New York fishing recently. My first time in New York fishing, I had the Trout Routes app, and I was able to check out and access public access points through the maze of private property on the rivers we were fishing. And after I got into the stream and was fishing down through a run, um, I wasn't quite sure. I saw a house down below. I wasn't quite sure where... The property lines ended, but given that I had trout routes, I was confident where I was fishing and I was able to uh, assure that I wasn't trespassing. You will be fully prepared with offline maps. You can get driving directions to points of interest, drop pins, 
add your notes in the app, all while keeping all of your data private to your account only. You can visit TroutRoutes.com right now to learn more and download the Trout Routes app for free in the App Store today. That's Trout Routes, T-R-O-U-T-R-O-U-T-E-S. Start exploring today. And when you do this um, kind of the snap and flip, are you typically doing this and not uh, pulling your line or your flies out of the zone? Can you do this while you're kind of fishing them while they're in the zone or do you do this all before you get to the fish? Well, in a perfect world, <laughs> I guess, <laughs> but it's not always perfect. No. And, you know, I try to get that mend exactly where I want it in the line. I try not to move the flies, but, you know, it sometimes it does, it works out better than others. You know, sometimes it's, uh, it works out just the way you envision it. And sometimes you end up wrecking your drift. Gotcha. Cool. Um, so I want to, so you're talking about the, the, you know, as you talk about the snap and flip or the spiral, it reminds me of like in a spade cast, the snake roll, and I'm not a great yeah. snake roll, but is that kind of what the same sort of thing? Yep. That is very similar. Yeah. The snake roll. Okay. And, and so the idea being there, just like a spade cast, you're trying to get that line stick off the water. And whenever you hear that slurping, so I can, I can, I can picture, um, Simon Gosworth, when he talked about the, the slurping sound of, you know, in his videos. But that's what you want to avoid, right? You don't want to get... How do you avoid that slurping? Is that why you do this, to avoid that, the slurping? For the recast, you bet. You bet. You can you can either do a spiral or you can just twitch your rod up and down so that the, the twitch goes the length of the, the line. And then once the line has broken free from the surface tension, then you can cast it without making any sound. And the cool thing about that is with either that technique or the spiral um, pickup or snake roll modification is not only does it uh, is it not slurp, um, but it doesn't disturb the surface like it does if you don't. If, if I pick it up without doing that, I could really send uh, all kinds of surface ripples and disturbance through the water. Um, and if it's on a slow moving pool, that's enough to put the pool off sometimes. And um, if I do some type of a spiral or a modified pickup, it just doesn't disturb the water as much. Not only does it not make much sound, that slurping sound, but it, it's really, really effective and not uh, disturbing the water. Perfect. All right. This is great because we're talking dry droppers and and then also just kind of how to fish it. So as, as your flies go down, it sounds like if you see a fish, maybe you're going to try to put some dead drifts on it. After that, when do you start twitching? And then what is like movement of the fly? What does that look like? Well, I think um, a lot of times I'll come through there with a dry fly. Uh, and so many people have advocated, uh, it's not my original idea, but advocating tearing down through the water uh, level. So starting out right on the surface, then bring a, a dry dropper through it, and then maybe nymph it, and then maybe, you know, twitch a woolly bugger through it at the end or something. So they, they're tearing down. And and uh, I saw, I got a chance to fish with an excellent dry fly fisherman, Jeff Courier, because uh, now he lives just north of me here in, in, in Wisconsin. And so um, we got, we've fished together several times now, and, and just watching what he does with a dry fly is pretty incredible. A very talented and gifted angler, but he uh, he does a lot of times take it through with a dry fly and then comes back through with dry dropper. And then, you know, towards the end, he will start doing some animations after the, the if the dead drifts have either produced all the fish they're going to um, or there haven't been any takes on it. He'll start some animations. And so a lot of it is high rod position. So we're not 
we're not putting that line in, uh, uh, on the water and we're trying to keep as much of the leader off the water too. So typically when we're recovering slack um, on a uh, classic upstream presentation, we've got a low rod position. We're bringing uh, the slack back in with our offhand, our non-rod hand or our line hand, and then um, recovering that slack that way through the drift. Well, for these animated drifts, um, rod position is really high. All the line ideally is off the water and we've got this long leader and he uses a long leader too. I think his was 12 or 13. Hmm. And um, then we are just vibrating and shaking that rod a little bit, giving a little pop up, you know, side to side shakes. Uh, but it's, it's all pretty subtle. I mean, we're not trying to move that six inches at a time. We just want to try to make a move in a natural looking way that a normal insect might. Um, again, bearing in mind that trout do eat um, living things. And so these things move and that will really add, um, you know, that degree. Sometimes it's what seals the deal on a trout is that little bit of lifelike animation, but it is a very high rod position. You're up at about 45 degrees or so much different from our classic, um, you know, the drag free drift. Right, right, right. So you're so high rod. So you're trying to keep in it at, on this, are you literally trying to keep all of the leader? Can you keep that out of the water up into the fly? Is that how it looks? Or do you have a little bit of tippet on the water? Or what, what's the goal? Sometimes. I mean, if you look at the classic Tenkara animations, they try to they try not to let anything ever hit the water. And so they're trying to, to just get the fly to come down on the water. And I think we can try that as well. We can do it just as effectively, I think, as well with these uh, longer, lighter leaders. But if six inches or a foot of that uh, leader, that terminal tip, it lays on the water, I think it's, a, it's not a negative. Um, but uh, what we really want to do is keep the bulk of it off of the water. And if you can keep it all off of it, that's fine. Especially when you do the dancing egg laying caddis, there isn't anything on the water that, uh, for that, um, animation. Oh, right. The dancing egg laying. So that would be a, what what would be the good pattern to match that dancing egg? So this would be this, a what a different size, this a caddis laying its eggs and it's bouncing up and down. Boom. Right. Like boom, boom, boom. Right, right. And so, I mean, if I were fishing the White River in, uh, in Arkansas, I probably would get um, uh, maybe a dry fly that, that looks like their brachycentris down there that oftentimes has that bright green egg sac on it. And so I might put something like that uh, as my dangling dry fly. Again, it's dangling off of that six-inch tag. And so it is so lifelike that it's amazing what that will do for your, your fish tally. But that's probably what I would do if there is that type of, uh, of uh, species there. Typically, I just use a, a deer hair modified X caddis uh, from Craig Matthews. And I, I usually will, t you know, make that kind of dab the water surface as I lower the rod, bearing in mind that that dropper is always kind of tethered to the water itself. And so you kind of have that almost like a, you know, like a, it's not an anchor, we fly it because that's a confusing term, but at least it kind of, it's anchored to the water. So as you drop your dry fly, it, it, uh, it um, uh, makes that thing, uh, imparts a really, really nice lifelike action to the dry fly. Perfect. And, and you mentioned uh, Craig Matthews, I think, on, on uh, the flies or the... the right. The, yeah. I like his fly. 
Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, his fly. That's, and I just want to highlight, we had an episode recently with Craig. Um, this is not too long ago, episode 536. We had Craig Matthews and Yvonne Chouinard on the podcast. And Oh, that would be a hoot. I'd like to see that one. Those are two really good guys. I've never met Craig, but I like oh, his wow. flies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, he's, it was great. He's got a great story because of, you know, obviously what he built and then also just the crazy, you know, area he lived in back in the time. But, you know, Yvonne <laughs> also, we, we talk conservation. 1% for the planet is yeah. their, you know, what they started. Oh, man. So. Yeah, well, Yvonne's cool too. I did a did some work with him um, when we did the book Nymph Masters because he's a real successful uh, nymph fisherman with Tenkara, and so I I fished with him a little bit up by his uh, his home waters in Jackson Hole. I learned a ton. I mean, he's a really really classy guy and a, a very talented fisherman. That's amazing. Yeah, so you were able to fish with Yvonne. I did. Wow, yeah. that's pretty cool. Was that that must have been pretty awesome to. You know, did it, was it a little bit, what was it like fishing with Yvonne? Because I just talked to him. I feel like he's very unique. You know, he's very, uh, he's pessimistic, but he's optimistic, right? About stuff. He's authentic. If I had to just use one word to describe him, he lives his uh, philosophy. And yeah, I don't know. I mean, you think of, of somebody like that, you know, pulling up in a, a Mercedes or something right. like that. But, yeah, billionaire, a guy that built a billion dollar business, right? I know. It couldn't be farther from the truth. I mean, he pulls up and I don't know if it was a 15 year old Subaru or something like that. And it was loaded up with recycling magazines, newspapers in the back. And he walks out and and I think he was wearing cut off uh, jeans and and water Crocs. And, and, (laughs) you know, it's not what I thought. (laughs) It kind of blew me away. That's so cool. Yeah, he lives it. You know, he's not there's no faking any of his stuff. It's, no, he's the real deal there, and I, just as a person and as an angler and as a conservation advocate. Yeah, that's great. Well, I think it's perfect talking about you, on because the Tinkara, we mentioned this at the start, but the Tinkara is something he definitely has pushed. But, you know, it's one of those things out there that over time has gotten from some people, right? There's this, like, Tinkara, is it fly fishing? What, what's your take? Just to clarify that on the Tinkara, why do you think that's out there? Why do you think you get occasionally folks in the fly fishing space? And it's probably a very small percentage but is that why do you think that is that people can sometimes say, well, it's not fly fishing. Why should you do that? Well, I mean, I think you could say, you know, you could put your own personal bias on almost anything. Um, and I think that uh, it's a very effective technique for those people that that uh, that do it and, and do it, uh, you know, to that extent. But um I, you know, it's like Euro-nymphing. Some people yeah. say the same thing about Euro-nymphing, but it's like, you know what, if it's what you like to do and you you uh, practice and you become adept at it and it's, you're catching fish at it, I mean, what does that matter? Yeah. What the rest, what, what, the, uh, what, what anybody else might think. Perfect. That's, that's well said. I think that's it. Yep. Do, do your thing and just enjoy it. And if you're having fun, yeah. that's the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, within reason. I mean, you can't just go do your thing at everyone else's expense. Right, but, that's a good I point. I mean, as long as you're treating the, the fish with respect and, and you're enjoying the sport and you're buying a license, you're putting money back into conservation, and it's it's just, it, you know, it's just all part of the same. We're, we, we live off the same resource. Right, right. And I think it kind of goes to the even the conventional fishing. Like, I mean, you know, the old, I think the old thing of like fly fishing had this, you know, this um, thought that like it was this old, you know, uh, uppity white guy sport on, you know, you yeah. got to fly, you got to be a dry fly purist. But I feel Hopefully like we've changed that. Yeah, <laughs> I feel like we've changed that. Right. I think that even the conventional, because like somebody might fish conventional and, and love it and there's nothing yeah. wrong with doing that or doing whatever. And there's a, a lot of dry fly uh, purists that that's the way they like to fish and and uh, that's fly fishing for them. And, and that's great. I think more 
more power to you. Whatever it is that that uh, you enjoy, I think um, adds to the sport. And I'll admit, you know, I love. I've got a buddy that's got a, a nice, really nice size bass pond, and we go out with kayaks and we we take spinning gear and fish wacky worms and catch a lot of big bass, and that's kind of fun too. Mm-hmm. That sounds great. Nice. Well, let's start to take it out of here. This is uh, this is going to be kind of our takeaway section, our, our three tips takeaway section. And this one is presented, like we mentioned at the start, the fly fishing and uh, the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival. Um, you know, Bo is doing this great thing. He's got these events going. I think the Texas one, have you been doing this one for a while? I've done it a couple of times. Now, I haven't been able to get down there uh, recently. I've done the Virginia one as well. These are great venues. They they're really attract a lot of, uh, of young families. And it's a nice mix of, of uh, combining, you know, beer or wine uh, and fly fishing because we, yeah, we usually do both in our sport. Yep. So, you know, that's kind of cool. And I, I, it's just a really good event. And he puts on a nice program. He really stresses uh, education in our sport and, and focuses on women and young people. And I love working in that type of an atmosphere because it's just it, it, everybody's happy to be there. Yeah. I love that. I love that. No, this is perfect. I think so for you, I I always love this question because I know what my favorite uh, brew is and I'm excited eventually to get down to the show to test it. But what's your drink? If you're out there having a beverage in the evening, what would it be? Well, if I'm going to be completely honest, my beverage of choice is a Moscow mule. Oh, there you go. Yeah, pretty much everybody on the the fly fishing show circuit knows that by now too. So I've made quite a few um, for different people in the in this in the show world. So, but that's my favorite. Um, I do like a you know I do like a a nice glass of beer too. I'm usually going to be like on a, a pilsner or a light wheat ale or something like that. But um, yeah, it's good to have at the end of the day, and and sometimes. People come to shows and, and uh, some of the best stuff gets swapped around the bar after the show is over. That's right. So people that go to the shows. So how? So when you do the show, Sam, I mean, for you, is it, um, I mean, you do quite a bit. What What is that you kind of just love? Do you, do you ever get tired of, of the show stuff? Is it something you kind of enjoy just going all out? I do. It's a lot of preparation, though, because I, I usually will retool pretty much every program seminar in class from year to year. So November, December gets to be pretty intense as, as I'm trying to, to put together new material, add things I've learned in the past year, because I mean, we're all learning. Uh, everybody's a learner in our sport. I always say that if you're not learning um, in our sport, then you are at that point the very best angler you'll ever be. Right. And so it, we're all learning. And so I add material every year. Um, and I'm always excited to get out there and share that. And, and I always look at it as an opportunity because I learn a lot too. People come up and say, hey, have you tried this? Or I'm doing something different, you know, and so it's it's a two-way street. Education is a is an ongoing thing. So I love to be with the people and talk about fly fishing, and and uh, usually on a three-day show we go out, uh, especially this time of year. You go out pretty much every Thursday, and you come back every Monday. So I'm not as home at much as much. Um, you know, I miss Joe, my wife, and my kids and grandkids. I miss my dog Walker. And, uh, my, my, I'm like texting Joe and I say, hi, honey, how are you? Send me a picture of the dog, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you miss your dog. You have a dog? You know, but we have, well, we had a dog for a couple of years and it, you know, it, it kind of no. passed away, but we have a cat now. It's so funny because we have this cat, which 
was kind of a, um, you know, we kind of got it from a home and it was, it had like, it's missing three teeth, but we've taken care of it. And now oh, it's, right. it's ours. And when I left, it literally was sitting on, on my leather couch on the place I sit, you know, like my uh-huh. spot. And he was like sitting there saying, basically, yep. See you later. You know, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have you care while you're gone. Yeah. So yep, I got this. Yeah, but no, I think we're we're more cats, so we're cat people now. But they, they, I love the dogs. Oh, that's too. cool, though. I mean, it doesn't matter. I mean, cats can be just as personable as well. But you know, it is. You, you spend a lot of time on the road. January, February, and March. If I if I took every um, commitment, you know, I could be gone. You know, five days out of every seven for three straight months, and you, right. you just can't do that because you know my my grandkids are are young too. They're all under five and. You know, I like hanging with them and, you know, going to church on Sunday and going out to lunch and dinner and stuff. So, I mean, yeah, it's good. But I do love I love being around the people. And when it's a real busy show, there's so much energy and excitement and it's addictive. Yeah, that's it. So you love the That's the thing that the talking. Right. So you're you're do you ever at the end of those shows when you're done, say, with the, the Texas show or any of these shows, do you feel at the end? Are you totally spent, burnt or do you have still energy at the end of the day? Um, yeah, usually you're pretty well talked out because if you do, um, yeah, you're talking, I mean, you're talking more than anybody pretty much, right? Yeah. Too much sometimes. And then you're doing a two or three hour class and then you're, right. you're talking to, to people, you know, the, uh, on the show floor and stuff like that. I mean, it seems like, you know, I, you lose your voice sometimes at the end of the day, but, um, you know, it's, a. Uh, you go to bed tired. I'll put it that way, but you wake up ready to do it again. It's like, oh yeah. Yep. Go for it. No, this is good. Okay, so so that's kind of a little bit on on the background there, and and like we said, we'll have a link to the Texas Fly Fishing and Brew Festival, and we'll we'll put a link also to the Virginia. We've been talking about that a little bit with some folks, but uh, so we kind of covered that. I mean, when you're there, I guess now describe that. So what what town is this the Texas show in? What's the nearest? What's the town? It's, well, the nearest big city is going to be Dallas Fort Worth, but it's in Mesquite, which is a smaller, um, you know, and it's not too far away from the airport, so it's pretty easy to get to. Um, and people, oftentimes we find people that come in and spend the whole weekend, get a hotel. And those are the people that hang around the bar with us at night. And, you know, a lot of times people will make a family event around the shows, which is really, really cool as well. That's cool. So if somebody comes to the show, if somebody is just a, a random person, they're near, you know, maybe drive into the area, they get there. Would they, after the show, are you saying people you're meeting up with, connecting with people that are just kind of uh, people that are attending the event sort of thing later? A lot of times. Yeah, we will end up going to a restaurant we can walk to. So it's either the hotel we're staying in or it's going to be someplace real close by. And we always, uh, you know, kind of gather and have a cocktail uh, at the, uh, you know, at that bar or hotel or something like that. And, you know, that usually people come up and we'll talk and, and it's just fun. We're very welcoming and inviting typically of people that, that are there as well for the, for the show, whether they're working the show or, or just coming with themselves or buddies or family. Perfect. No, this is awesome. Well, and let's take it away here. So I mentioned kind of we're uh, setting this up. So we talked, you nailed this as far as tips on the drive dropper and all everything. But if you had to kind of say the three takeaways on this topic, you know, dry dropper, fishing it and, you know, setting it up, what would be, you know, maybe you want to summarize or just tell us what would be the three takeaways you would tell somebody to, to take away on this episode? Yeah, for dry droppers, I would say practice. Um, I think whether you can get to the river or not, you can still practice these casts, um, build your leaders, take the time to do that. 
Um, you don't have to be a Bears fan to do that. I'm sure, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's other opportunities as well. But I'm going the backyard and cast. And in I think practice is probably one of the most overlooked thing about all forms of fishing is that we see you know, we see the the elite basketball player make that game-winning free throw when the game's on the line with no time on the clock. And we think, okay, well, you know, that's just a God-given uh, talent. And, you know, certainly some of it is. But you can practice. And what the average person doesn't see is they didn't see the 10,000 free throws he shot this week right. in practice when no one's watching. And so I think practicing your reach cast, practicing your mending, practicing your, your slack line or pile cast uh, at home, I think is going to prepare you for the river. And then when I go to the river, one of the biggest takeaways I could share that's helped me is, um, and it might sound a little counterintuitive, but I don't go to the, the river to catch fish. I go to the river to practice. I go to the river to become a better angler. And so I focus on my cast. I focus on my drift. I focus on my presentation, my line management, all these things that I'm really focusing on. And then as a result, you end up catching a lot of fish, which is uh, gratifying and, and really, I guess, kind of the true reason we're going. But if you have the mindset that I'm going to practice and I want to focus on doing it right. Um, I don't want to catch that accidental fish unless it's really big. Um, I want to catch intentional fish. And so I think having that mindset when you do go to the river after you practice, take that mindset to the river and then um, do your homework, be prepared, know what's going to be happening on that stream or river. Um, or if it's your own home waters, you probably already have a good feel for it so that you have um the right flies, you've got everything set before you get to the river. So, so much of this can happen um, before you even get to the river. Wow. I love that. That's the perfect, I think, takeaway is that, like you said, it's uh, being on the river and literally not focusing on, just focusing on a specific piece, the cast, the the mend, you know, that's that's great advice. Yeah, that's true. And I think if you look at the industry average, as someone shared this with me, that they they said that you know, for the average angler, they spend less than six days a year on the water. Right. And I think nothing really replaces time on the water. And I think even if you just get to the pond um, down the street from you, uh, uh, the golf course pond or something like that. Yeah. Or the blue line or just looking at a blue line in your backyard somewhere nearby. Yeah. Right? Anything, anything. You don't have to get to your favorite trout stream if it's two hours away, but you can get someplace or pick up the fly rod and practice that I think you could get to that. Uh, they say you know, that 90% of the trout are caught by 10% of the anglers. You can get to that, that 10% if you really commit yourself to it. Perfect. And one last one, random one here. So you, you mentioned the Bears a couple of times, and I always think whenever I think of the Chicago Bears, I think of the 80s, right? The, the Perry, oh, yeah. Perry, Jim McMahon with his chin and everything. <laughs> so why are you, you're up in Wisconsin, so why you haven't, uh, did you grow up in Chicago or why are you, or are you just close enough there that you're a Bears or a, a Green Bay fan? Well, I like them both, and and uh, I'm not just a diehard fan. I like to see the local teams do well, okay. and you know I'm a frustrated Bears fan. I love to see the Bears do well. I like to see Green Bay um, do well as well because I'm up there a lot. But I grew up in Southern Illinois, oh, okay. and so yeah, I probably I went to school in Central Illinois, and I think. I just having that allegiance probably skews it just a little bit, but um, yeah. I just like to see a good game. A good game. So what happens when it's Chicago against uh, the Green Bay? Who who are you 
going for. <laughs> yeah, I've got to I've got to take the uh, deigning on that one because yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're both they're both. I have friends that are diehard loyalists in both camps, and so I would probably run the risk of offending one of them. And then, what about this one? If you had to choose between the rest of your life, you could only nymph fish or only dry fly fish. Okay, nymph fish. There you go, nymph. And that's uh, mainly because, you know, you could, uh, what, is it you enjoy it more or you could just catch more fish? I enjoy both. I really do enjoy. The one thing I probably don't do as much as I should is streamer fishing. I don't, I just have not, I've, I've done it a lot, but I've not developed what I would call any, any specific expertise at it. And I'd like to probably focus more on that. But nymph fishing is going to catch fish for me anyway, more consistently than anything else. I know that if there's no hatch, I can still catch fish. Uh, 90% of the, the time trout are feeding um, from the, the subsurface drift, not on the surface. And I just know that I'll have uh, more fish at the end of the day for me. Um, typically. And I know a lot of really good dry fly anglers that probably um, could do very, very well on most days too. But yeah, in my hands, I, I know I can do better nymph fishing um, day after day. Perfect. And you, uh, and so, and just give us a heads up as we head out the books. So you've written a number of books. What would be anything to take this conversation further? Just to let us know what you have going. Do you have uh, any new books coming up as we're looking ahead? No, I've taken a, a sabbatical um, at this point. I used to be writing for two or three magazines uh, every year. You know, I'd be putting out a lot of magazine articles and, and several uh, books. I've written uh, four books, the, the first three being the Fly Fisher's Guide Trilogy to, to different uh, uh, aspects of our sport. And then the most recent one is Nymph Masters, which was a cool thing because it was a corroborative uh, effort from several of us. And I got to, to learn and, and fish with uh, people like Joe Humphreys several times and Lefty and, wow. and uh, Landon Mayer, George Daniel, um, Ed Engel, cool. just a ton of great, great nymph anglers. And uh, it, was, uh, it was fun. Um, I learned a lot, and it was a great book because of uh, all the secrets that uh, everybody shared. Uh, but I'm kind of on I'm on sabbatical for writing. I'm doing a lot more on-stream education, and if people are interested in that, they can certainly hit my Instagram handle as well. Um, I do a lot of work. I'll be in Colorado um, doing a, a school, four- or five-day school. I'm usually out there every summer uh, for that. And then I'm doing um, some work up in the Wisconsin Driftless Streams. Um, so I, I really enjoy. I like the, the personal one-on-one on-stream stuff. I think it's a real uh, effect educational format. Perfect. All right, Jason. Well, I think this is great. I think we will leave it there for today and we'll send everybody out to on Instagram at Jason Randall Fly Fishing. And uh, yeah, I just want to thank you for your time today and all the tips this episode has been. You pretty much knocked it out of the park, I think, for people. So uh, I'm sure you'll get a few uh, you know connections as we go. But thanks again for everything today. Great, Dave. Thanks. It's great to, to be back on with you again. Thank you for the opportunity. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com, if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. We'll talk to you soon.
Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.